ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to a very special episode of the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My hope for our listeners is that you can take away a special nugget of information from each of these interviews, something that will serve you and the people most important to you in pursuing a life built on purpose. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Y Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Eric Severson. Eric spent the last decade and a half as a member of the people team at the apparel giant Gap. During his time at Gap, Eric was part of some truly groundbreaking HR and people initiatives, including implementation of a results-only work environment, becoming the first major apparel retailer to raise the minimum hourly wage to $10, becoming the first major retailer in the world to release statistical evidence on paying men and women equally in all geographies, and leveraging neuroplasticity and mindset psychology as part of a leading edge performance management system. Some really heady stuff. We'll also dive into the difference between work-life balance and work-life integration, a topic Eric is very passionate about. Eric is currently serving as an appointee on the U.S. Commerce Department's National Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship, a role that focuses on the key drivers of America's global competitiveness. This episode is full of great insight with a specific focus on how to help your people become the best version of themselves to not only help your business grow, but to foster a spirit of personal growth within every member of the people you lead. Ladies and gentlemen, I share with you, Eric Severson. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And it's an honor to be here with you as well, Brian. Thank you for having Ab- me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you spent uh, a decade and a half working for likely one of the most recognized brands in the uh, the consumer apparel uh, fashion space. You know, give us a sense of, uh, of what it was like working for Gap and uh, maybe an emphasis around really a lot of the changes that happened during that time frame. Sure. So clearly for me, it's one of the pinnacle moments of my life really is those years at Gap for a number of reasons. I think first and foremost, as someone who never envisioned himself going into a career in business, I had intended to be uh, an English teacher and professor earlier in my life. And as somebody who did things like protested apartheid on the quad in college and things like that, it's hard for me to have imagined at that time in my life that I'd go on to be a, a business executive at Gap. And one of the reasons that I think it was such a beautiful match is that Gap has in its DNA, really the DNA it inherited from its founders, Don and Doris Fisher, a deep belief in commerce and social responsibility as a virtuous cycle. Uh, rather than a vicious cycle. And really, as you look back in the company's history, going all the way back to 1969 when it was founded in San Francisco, there is a whole series of firsts, so to speak, of instances in which the company stepped out from what other companies were doing to do the right thing in the community. And so I think for me, I look back at that time in my career with great fondness because one of the things it did is build in me 
the belief through proof points that companies can make money for shareholders, which is important because any of us who have a retirement account are shareholders. <laughs> um, and at the same time, it can use its power, the power of its brands, the power of its influence to create good in the communities in which it sells its products, makes its products, et cetera. And I think the Gap experience taught me how that can be done. You know, so let, let's stay on that for a moment, because obviously under your leadership uh, at Gap, uh, and in fact, I want to get to you serving as co-CHRO, but we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. But there were a lot of firsts that I know you were instrumental and were a big part of. Uh, one of those was the raising of the minimum wage. Um, I think was that back in was it two was it about a year ago? Two thousand fifteen was when that took place. Is it twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen? We initiated it in twenty fourteen. And so maybe share a little bit, because that's a, I mean, you, uh, Gap at the time, 140, 145,000 worldwide employees raising the minimum wage uh, before there was this intense amount of pressure that's been mounting for other organizations, whether they're in the retail space or not. But I, I would imagine as you uh, embarked upon that journey to raise them in the minimum wage, that you must have been met with some interesting pushback from other leaders in the organization. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like? What led to it? What the pushback was, if any? Uh, and ultimately, what the uh, initiative has done for GAP? Sure, Brian. I think I would start by zooming out a bit to paint a picture of the ecosystem within which the minimum wage increase took place. And one part of that ecosystem was an initiative that is still going on today called Women and Opportunity. And Women and Opportunity was an effort we led to tap into the many ways that the company was working to improve the experience of women as customers, as employees, as community members. And this really draws from a belief that started in the company a number of years ago that as a company, we had unique strengths and attributes. And one of those just happened to be that we had a long standing experience of being a leader for women. So one of our founders, Doris Fisher, obviously is a woman and has continued to be a strong leadership force in the company right up to today. She's still on our board. And since her founding of the company, women have been represented in leadership roles all the way up to the top at in very high numbers, uh, to the extent that today, three quarters of the CEO's leadership team is made up of women, as, including the President's Old Navy and Banana Republic, the CFO, the general counsel, the, um, the head of talent, et cetera. And 73% of the store managers are women. So Gap has this long sort of history of being a place where women 
don't experience a glass ceiling. So a number of years ago, we looked at this and said, how do we look beyond simply doing the right thing inside the company to create equal opportunity for women? And how do we go out into the community and start leading social change by leveraging our position of power as a very well-recognized brand? So one of the initiatives we undertook had to do with minimum wage. So about two-thirds of minimum wage earners in the United States are women. So women are disproportionately negatively affected by the very low minimum wage rates in the U.S. And when we looked at our workforce, we said, since our workforce is 74% female, if we made a move to raise our minimum wage, it would have multiple positive effects on the ecosystem. One, we would be upgrading the quality of our talent. We had launched an initiative a couple of years before called Store of the Future, where we're looking out to 2020 and beyond and saying, what's the future of retail look like? And, and the future of retail looked like a world with a lot fewer stores, a lot smaller stores, but in which the level of service was going to be expected to be much higher. To achieve that kind of service, we were going to need to invest more in, in people and talent to get the very best. So it, it was a favorable thing to do for our business and our, particularly our customer service proposition. But also, by raising the minimum wage, we would be affecting 60,000 of our own employees. And what we did was we followed on President Obama's call to raise the minimum wage to 1010 in uh, his State of the Union address at the beginning of uh, 2014. And we announced it right after, right at the same time, essentially, as that. Uh, and that's why President Obama visited a Gap store in New York City in the weeks following to call attention to the fact that uh, Gap was making this move. And this was at some considerable uh, additional expense to the company's P&L. So we had to weigh that against the social good and the fact that about 80% of GAP's customers are women, as well as 74% of its employees. So in thinking about this, we thought by, by doing this, we're going to have an, an impact across all of the stakeholders in our ecosystem. And that's good for the company's brand. It's good for our future comp uh, competitiveness in the talent marketplace and service levels. And it, it gets us out in front on a really important social issue weighing in. And it's interesting to note, this is something that the company probably would not have done 10 years before. But in the last few years, we paid a lot of attention to what the majority of our employees, who are millennials, were saying about the role they wanted their company to play in improving the general community and taking a stand on social issues. And we also looked at research, which has conclusively shown that the millennial generation has more faith in the ability of companies to affect positive social change than government, and they want their companies to do that. So when we made the move and raised the minimum wage to $10 across all of Gap Inc., we thought that it might start a conversation nationally about this. What it ultimately led to, though, was a number of Gap's 
competitors for talent, uh, notably uh, TJX, Target, and ultimately Walmart announcing they were raising their, their minimum wage as well. And what became very clear to us is that companies that are first movers on important social issues can have an impact much beyond its own workforce. If you look in this instance, well beyond the 60,000 plus employees who got a raise out of this to say Walmart, which employs a million people. Was there pushback? Was there, there pushback was. Yeah, from leadership on the inside? Yeah, so there was definitely concern because there was a considerable price tag uh, to taking this action all at once. And there were significant discussions among the leadership team. Ultimately, the team aligned on the fact that this needed to be done. But I will say that it took considerable courage and vision on the part of the CEO who championed this action to convince and influence his leadership team that this was the right thing to do both for the business and for the community, particularly when you take into account, Brian, that the impact to the business of taking an action like this would appear to accrue over time, not be as immediate as the expense. I will say, however, that in the months following this action, in the year following this action, we noticed a significant uptick in the number of uh, quality employees applying for our jobs. So at Old Navy, for example, was 25% increase in uh, job applications. So it clearly had the impact we intended. You know, I'm curious from a same store sales perspective, did once the news hit and, you know, the, the, the swell began that Gap is making a pretty bold statement, raising the minimum wage, uh, did, did Gap and the family of brands see a, an uptick in consumers voting with their, their feelings, their emotions, their conscience saying, you know, because Gap did this, I'm going to go spend more of my money than what I might already spend there. Did you guys see that? We saw it in public opinion weighing in on social media okay. about our action. It was very difficult to parse out the bottom line and top line impact on sales or earnings of this action because there are so many other things going on in the environment. Uh, promotions, um, other kinds of sales, uh, other headwinds in the environment. It's very difficult to tell that where a sales lift was the result of this specific action versus a, a pricing action that we took. Sure. Um, but it was very clear that consumer goodwill improved. I think it's great. So in that, you spoke briefly about uh, touched on millennials. And given that the lion's share of the GAPS employee base is millennials, and you know, there's plenty of data suggesting that uh, within the next few years, they will comprise uh, uh, almost three quarters of our workforce, at least here in the States. You know, a lot's been said about them. I'm curious from the experience you've had, What's what's one or two of the biggest min misconceptions about millennials? Well, given that at Gap, for 
years, millennials have made up the majority of our workforce. Um, I think one of the biggest misconceptions we observed was that millennials truly are not not what I would characterize as entitled and certainly not lazy. What we saw among our millennial employees was that they were very much interested in having an integrated and balanced life, one that was driven by purpose and a balance of their interests. So I think I would differentiate that from the general perspective um, often of say baby boomers or even Gen X, whose work experience was one where they often were expected to quote, put in the time, work extensive hours in their 20s and 30s, and maybe there'd be some payoff later in their career and they could relax and take some time off. Our millennial employees were expecting and demanding that there be a more balanced approach to how work gets done. And I think the second misconception is that they are not connected or networked or um, uh, that they just spend all their time with technology and not with people. Certainly what I would say is uh, they just connect differently with each other and they use their technology to connect with other people uh, extensively, you know, certainly in the workplace. And that's one of the reasons that our CEO in 2014 insisted that a longstanding Gap Inc. policy that prohibited employees from having cell phones anywhere in the store, uh, that that policy be eliminated. You know, employees were still expected to engage with customers, but he was recognizing, I remember one of the things he said to me was, but these are human beings. He said, I can't imagine being anywhere without my phone. That's how I know where my I'm in contact with my kids and my wife, and, and we can't expect our employees to have no contact with their loved ones. This is the way it happens these days. And also, it was a way for our employees to interact with customers and help them use our digital solutions, our digital uh, customer user interfaces to help find product and um, learn more about product and um, that kind of thing. So you, you, you briefly mentioned the concept of uh, work-life integration um, and this you know, misconception about millennials you know, demanding balance, but it's not so much balance. It's that they actually simply want uh, uh, the proper integration. Is that what led to or in part what led to this journey that you led around the results-only work environment? It is. So our workplace uh, flexibility initiatives were, are part of the overall women and in opportunity initiative. So of course it's for all employees, but one of the things that all of the significant research has demonstrated over and over again is that women in the United States, but really in many countries still bear the bulk of the childcare elder care and home care responsibilities, although that's decreasing, that's still true. So as an employer with a workforce that was three quarters female, we were very concerned with the fact that our workforce compared to others, where there's a more equal balance of men and women, uh, was disproportionately negatively affected by, by all of that. And 
we said to ourselves is in order to achieve competitive advantage in attracting and keeping the best talent, we're going to have to do more than just focus on wages and increasing the minimum wage. We're going to have to focus on this larger equation that you just mentioned, Brian, which is how do millennial employees and employees in general have a whole and complete life. And so a number of years ago, going all the way back to 2008, um, we started the results only work environment initiative, but that was after I'd say five or six years of experimentation with all kinds of workplace flexibility initiatives, everything from no meeting Fridays in headquarters to laptops for all initiative. We bought our headquarters employees laptops so that they could work from anywhere. A number of other things. The results only work environment is that goes way further, even beyond the concept of flexibility. It's actually more about empowerment, which is something that millennials are also extremely concerned about. And the concept is, that you have an agreement with your employees that they can work wherever they want, whenever they want, as long as they get the work done with the same quality, the same accuracy, the same timeliness as before. And in exchange, you as the employer gets to hold account employees completely and utterly accountable just for getting results, no excuses. So uh, we implemented that. We started with pilots and tests in, starting in 2008 and ultimately rolled it out uh, to all of uh, Gap Brand headquarters, Banana Republic, uh, Outlet, uh, most of the headquarters part of the company. And then concurrently, a couple of years ago, we said to ourselves, but that doesn't affect the hourly workforce in the stores that has a, an identical concern for how their work and their life integrate. And that tends to be in, with hourly employees, it has to do with their schedule. So we partnered with one of the, the most significant experts in the world on hourly scheduling, particularly in retail. And that's the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California Hastings in San Francisco. And the leader of the center, Joan Williams, who uh, has been conducting research for decades on the impact of scheduling on health, well-being, et cetera, and people. And so uh, we began piloting in regions uh, and a number of different regions within Gap Brand in Chicago and San Francisco and some other places. A number of experiments in stores um, to increase the amount of stability in people's schedules. So fewer changes in their schedules, schedules that are more conducive to living. Things like um, experimenting with fixed schedules where people knew that they were going to work the same days every week and experimenting with schedule swapping technology. So an app where employees could go onto the app and swap hours or pick up extra hours from others who needed to give them away because they might have a, a sick child or um, an exam to study for, things of that nature. So the report on that pilot is about to come out in the next in the next few months from the Center for Work-Life Law. So please be on the lookout for that. But um, the, the early results were very promising and illustrate that with some coordinated effort, um, even a business with wildly fluctuating customer demand, like a retail store, 
can find ways to create more scheduling stability uh, and therefore more work-life balance for its workforce. So I'm curious, uh, a few, uh, at least two questions around the results-only uh, journey that the GAP has been on. When it was originally rolled out in 08, after the series of flexibility-type uh, tests and experiments that you guys did, did it wreak any sort of havoc on the actual leadership or management practices of those individuals who were very used to having their team show up between, you know, the let's just assume eight and five when it came to the corporate office. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I've got a dispersed team. Um, they're at home, they're in coffee shops, whatever the case may be. They're working at very different hours. Did, did that, uh, was there an adjustment period? Was there additional training that uh, was given to, to your leaders and your managers to help them assimilate to a pretty radical shift in the way the work was being done? Yes, it's a really good question, Brian. So part of rolling out a results-only work environment is a fairly rigorous training and change management protocol. So there's only so much stuff you can train up front, but we trained all of the employees who were going through the change and all of the leaders who were going through the change on what to expect, how to lead, how to adapt the way you lead, uh, how to deal with problems. And along the way, we set up change management working teams where both managers and employees could troubleshoot with designated representatives throughout the business on how to solve any problems, challenges, difficulties that came up along the way. But the bottom line is that for leaders who have been um, adapting to the way work has changed over the last decade or so, digital technology, mobile technology, et cetera, it's not much of a change at all. So many leaders in our business were flexible about how they allowed their employees to work for years, even though we didn't have an official policy like Roe. I think for leaders who tended to lead in more, I would call them old school ways, uh, watching what people do, as opposed to managing the outcome of their work and coaching yeah, them. Sure. It was a harder transition, but what I would say is the general conclusion of management at the time was, well, we would do it again because one of the things it does is it calls out where are the leaders who need to change how they lead and manage people because the way they're leading and managing isn't engaging, isn't inspiring, isn't motivating, and isn't driving top results. So uh, while Roe is about holding people accountable for getting results in their own work, it's also about holding leaders accountable for leading people in a 21st century world where most of the work being done is knowledge work rather than say manufacturing work, which is, which is uh, what the old way of managing, uh, walking around inspecting what people are doing, where that came from. Right, right. Well, that plays very nicely into uh, this concept of, uh, you know, moving beyond the knowledge economy to the conceptual economy, you know, leveraging on some of uh, Pink's work. 
Um, my, my second question around Roe, did it have an impact? And I, I have an assumption, but you know what they say about assumptions. Did it have an impact on either voluntary or involuntary turnover? It did. So one of the things that we did with Roe that was an important learning for us was we tracked carefully the results of our pilots. So we tracked productivity, employee engagement, employee turnover, where we had clear internal customer groups. We tracked customer service impact, etc. And one of the things that was consistent across all of our pilots or every time we implemented Roe is that employee turnover was involuntary, sorry, employee voluntary turnover was reduced by almost 50% in virtually every case, in some cases more than 50%. Wow. I mean, that's a significant impact. It's a very significant impact. I think over the course of the seven years that Roe has been in place, very, very conservative turnover estimates across the business uh, come in at many, many tens of millions of dollars, if not more, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of turnover savings as a result of this. And ultimately, there's that's not even tracking the uh, productivity cost uh, advantage and, and other benefits from Roe as well. And so uh, one of the things that was very true about, about Roe is that we started using it initially to solve for an operating problem, that we had turnover rates in our business at the time that Roe was implemented that were in the double digits in many parts of the, the business. And we were losing great talent. And we, we knew that from our data collection that burnout or a lack of work-life flexibility was consistently one of the top three reasons that we were losing professional talent, which is a huge problem for a company whose professional talent includes its designers and its merchants, the people who fundamentally design and produce the, the garments your, pro, your key product. Yeah. So, uh, so we, it started as an operating initiative, but ultimately it became a long-term initiative of strategic competitiveness. So we began to publicize it extensively, initially to achieve some competitive advantage in the talent marketplace, which we did. Uh, we were able to successfully recruit many, many top candidates from competitors for talent because we had something to offer that they didn't, which was the results only work environment, a guarantee essentially of flexibility about how you, how and where you do your work. And uh, ultimately it became over time, our number one employee engagement program for professional employees as evidenced from our quarterly pulse survey where employees could identify one thing about the company they thought made us very competitive, they didn't want to change. And over a number of years, Roe was consistently the number one item that employees chose to identify in that survey. So the massive reduction in voluntary, I would assume then, was met with a uh, healthy increase, perhaps, in involuntary. I, I, 
it, it feels as if, and please correct me if this hunch is, is wrong, that if now I'm being judged solely for the results I deliver versus the amount of time I can log, that some of those folks that maybe get a little comfy and can hide between the cracks in a relatively large organization were likely uh, you know, outed or found out. And so uh, what did involuntary spike a bit? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Uh, not just once, but each time we facilitated an implementation across the business because we didn't, we did not implement row all at once. Uh, we took it business unit by business unit. And interestingly, Best Buy, who had originated the yeah. results only work environment yeah, concept, yeah told us all this because they track data too. And they said, well, your, your, your voluntary churn will generally be cut in half in the first year and your involuntary will double. Well, ours doubled and in some cases tripled or even quadrupled. Now granted, in most companies, you don't have an, a, a very high amount of involuntary turnover. It might be in the low single digits. Um, however, uh, doubling and tripling, it's quite significant and it is exactly for the reason you stated that individuals who had been looking like model employees, in other words, maybe working 50, 60 hours a week, lots of FaceTime, always being present, but were not actually contributing to positive results. They weren't getting the job done. They weren't collaborating, they weren't cooperating, which started to stand out like a sore thumb. Sure. Because all of a sudden in the environment, you were no longer recognizing uh, simply effort. You had to be able to get results. And so people would be moved along. In some cases, people would be moved into other jobs that are more suitable for them. If they couldn't perform in other jobs, then they would exit. And um, ultimately, what we found is the perception among employees was that this environment was monumentally more fair in their perception than the traditional environment. Well, and I would imagine too that, you know, if, if nothing else, anecdotally, what you learned and the team at Gap learned and likely continues to is continually reinforced is that people's relationship with money uh, oftentimes is not the most important driver of employment decisions. If, if, if the results only work environment was the one strategy, the workforce strategy that was the, hey, what's the one thing you never want us to change? And that was the answer versus, you know, minimum, you know, raising minimum wage or higher wages, you were likely able to attract probably some really great talent who maybe were taking pay cuts to come work for you because you were offering something that was far more valuable than just a, a few extra bucks on the, you know, the, the biweekly or monthly paycheck. That's true. And one of the advantages of quarterly surveying is that you gather a, a significant amount of historical data over time. And one of the pieces of qualitative data that we accrued over time was a wealth of employee comments about Roe that were very specific, including they're just voluntary stories that people would tell you. And there were a significant number of individuals who said in their comments that they had turned down promotional opportunities or opportunities for jobs with more pay in order to stay in the results only work environment. And one thing that I would say, Brian, that I think we learned through this whole experiment was 
that for our employees anyways, um, what was very true was regardless of generation, that the way they actually thought about their value proposition was this for how hard I work and for the enjoyment I get from my job and the development I get from my job and the money I get paid. I believe that the staying at this job is worth it. That is the equation that people run through their mind on a regular basis. I think a lot of people have the misconception that money trumps all. It's always a balancing act and the money is just part of it for how much I get paid, how much sacrifice am I asked to make in the rest of my life. So as an employer, if you can figure out a systemic way to enable people to increase the amount of flexibility they have to achieve the other goals and purpose they have in their life while making their salary with you, you will achieve competitive advantage in their minds. And to your point, encourage people to come and join you, even if you can't pay them more than a competitor. And there are many times where um, we had competitors who might be willing to pay more. And part of our strategy was to say, regardless of economic conditions, when, when economic conditions are tough and we don't have the money to pay more, this is an advantage that is immune to the effects of a down economy that we can maintain. I think ultimately the last thing I would just say about this is, um, I think it's a good example of something that ends up being part of the virtuous cycle concept I mentioned earlier, that there were operating reasons that we undertook this to, to fix a problem with burnout among our workforce. There were strategic reasons to try to gain competitive advantage. And at the end of the day, we went out and talked about it. It would be easy to just keep it to ourselves because we, I remember saying once to someone in an interview that there was a part of me that hoped that our competitors wouldn't copy this because then we would continue to have competitive advantage. But the humanitarian me wished that everyone would adopt the results only work environment because there are so many people who suffer needlessly because of archaic 20th century rules about where and when you have to work in an age where digital technology has made it possible to work almost anywhere, including Starbucks or the airplane. Right. Well, in this, you know, just to perhaps tie a bow on, on this portion of our chat is this really supports something that I know uh, you're very passionate about clearly is that, you know, who better than the individual uh, him or herself to determine how best to integrate all of the different parts of their life uh, that need attention, you know, so as opposed to, you know, some of the older HR policies where everybody's treated, you know, sort of a smattering of homogeneity. Um, this is really allowing each individual to be an individual and is empowering them to make the best decision for their life as opposed to trying to treat everybody like one big giant individual. Yeah, I think, Brian, I would give your listeners a couple of things to think about. One of them would just be a question that we asked ourselves at the time we were implementing the results-only work environment, which is why does it work to send 17 or 18-year-olds 
off to college with the admonition that they can have freedom to figure out how they're going to do it. But what you're going to hold them accountable for is getting the right grades at the end of the semester. They can study, they cannot study, they can join study groups, they cannot, they can go to class, they cannot go to class, they can party, they cannot party. But you're really just holding them accountable for getting the right grades that they can graduate. Right. But then they go to the workforce a couple of years later and they need to sit in a certain place and be watched, et cetera. And I think as we really thought about it, we realized our employees are quite capable as long as we're very clear about what their objectives are and how we're going to hold them accountable of managing their own time with our mentorship and our coaching, but uh, about being held accountable uh, to it for sure. And there's a futurist named Jacob Morgan, who I know who likes to say that um, in the 21st century, the smartest person in the room is the one with the smartphone. So I think the days when employees went to work and stayed in the dark, except for what their manager chose to confer upon them in terms of knowledge about the business, those days are over. Um, employees have instant access to information and are much better able than in the past to be able to adapt to changing conditions. And I think it kind of behooves all of us to really think about how the world has changed in the last couple of decades and how we need to change our workplace to reflect that. How much of uh, these experiments, and you know, we, we obviously spent uh, a, a great deal of time talking about Roe. We talked about uh, the minimum wage increase. How, how much, and I know there's plenty of other experiments that proved quite successful that you were a part of. How much of those experiments led you and the team to really exploring the concept of neuroplasticity and each individual's ability to reorganize based on the environment, which then led to the performance management system that you guys moved to in uh, either 2012 or 2013, really uh, going away from the, the archaic ratings reviews to something that was, I think, far more aligned to the world we live in today. How much of all this experimentation opened up your mind and the minds of the folks you worked with around this concept of neuroplasticity? So it's all related. So if you look at all of these concepts, they all relate to a core philosophy that was in operation for over a decade, which uh, I would put like this. I would say to my team, uh, wherever there is an evidence-based practice, I want us to use it. Okay, there's not always going to be an evidence-based practice available for us to use in talent management, but where there is, we should be putting that into place because one, our shareholders' money is too valuable to waste, and two, our people are too important and too valuable to be wasting time on practices that don't work. So when it comes to the performance system, something that we have been studying at the same time that we implemented results on the work environment, a number of other similar programs, uh, we, we were looking at the performance system and listening to the feedback of both employees and leaders that it was consuming a really monumental amount of time, energy, and effort and they questioned whether it was delivering value. And for a lot of employees, they actually despised the process. They were very open about it in our, in our surveying. They disliked the process. Concurrently, my team and I, since really the 
early mid 2000s had been studying what the evidence was on how to motivate people to high performance. We uh, we dug into human performance science as it began to emerge, neuroplasticity research, and mindset psychology, the, the study of successful people, for answers to how you could actually build a system inside a company that would inspire individuals and teams to the highest performance. And what we found was that what we were doing, which was very much like what most other large companies have been doing for decades, a system of annual ratings and reviews and linking uh, pay to those review scores, uh, that that system not only didn't work, but actually was demonstrated to demotivate people um, and result in lower performance. So the system that we built called uh, GPS or Grow, Perform, Succeed, which is also the, uh, the company stock ticker, GPS, uh, that system was built on a foundation of science, human performance science, neuroplasticity research, and mindset psychology, so that all of the techniques in, uh, in, the, in the program are built from actual research. And the system that GAP now operates with has no annual ratings, no annual review. It's a system that consists of monthly structured conversations about what people achieved, what they learned from their mistakes and their successes and how they were going to change what they were doing going forward to encompass that learning. So it was really about shifting the company from a performance system that was about documenting what you did last year to a system that was about continuous learning, which um, we believed and all the science said is what's required to be a successful company in the 21st century because of the speed of change. You've got to constantly be learning and changing what you're doing over and over, which ultimately is what this, the iconography of the program was about. Uh, we used a global positioning system, another GPS, as the imagery for the program to illustrate to people that the point of the program is like a GPS system. When you make a wrong turn, it recalculates and redirects you. Yeah. This GPS system is supposed to do the same. Help employees constantly adapt when they encounter changes in the marketplace, changes with customers, changes in the business, and redirect their efforts and their goals. Well, I'll tell you, we could probably spend uh, a whole nother uh, podcast together talking about, you know, as as we continue to lean into learning and that concept of continuous learning, how do you make sense of all of this new knowledge acquisition and, and you know, essentially be able to filter what is useful, what is not, how do you connect dots uh, to make sense of what's coming in so that you can make better decisions uh, moving forward. But we can save that for another time. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I wanted to just touch on this concept of a co-CHRO. Um, you know, there's certainly been a growing movement around having co-CEOs. You've, uh, you've probably seen, as I have, some uh, relatively large organizations moving to a shared CEO responsibility. Uh, but I don't know that I, uh, other, than, other than you and, and Gap, had ever seen a co-CHRO, uh, you know, a type, type of a share. Um, 
what was the logic behind that? Was it size? Was it a yin and yang sort of approach with you and another individual? Give us, give us just a, a little bit of that history and how that came to be. Sure. So I think like many such arrangements, it began sort of fortuitously uh, that as the, the previous CHRO, Eva Sage Gavin, left the organization in 2013, the CEO at the time, Glenn Murphy, was considering how he should handle that and did he want to hire another CHRO and who would that be? And when he looked in the organization, he said, well, I have Eric and Dan, Dan being Dan Hankel, my counterpart, my co-CHRO, and they've been running for Eva for the previous year. Um, the HR part of her responsibilities, our, our boss, our previous CHRO had responsibilities beyond HR. And as she leaned into some of those, she had asked us to take over leadership of the HR leadership team for the previous year. So Glenn looked at that and said, hmm, I think that these guys could do the job. It'd be a great developmental experience for them. I trust them and I don't have to go hire somebody else. So he did that. We joined his leadership team and um, that's what started the experience. And what I would say is, what he probably recognizes that we had complementary skills, just like many CEO, COO combinations or co-CEO combinations. Uh, we had worked together for years and had developed a nice rhythm and ease with how to share accountability. And at the same time, we're super different. Um, so I think a couple of the advantages that we saw from this model is one around productivity. So I just think I would ask anybody who's listening, just think, imagine if there were two of you, <laughs> you could clone yourself, how much you could get done. And I would say that. <laughs> I just had an image of my wife killing me. <laughs> and the other <laughs> Well, I think one of the advantages we saw is that during this period, the last couple of years of Glenn's uh, term as a CEO, there was a flurry of activity in the talent space. We undertook some of, some of our most innovative and uh, kind of bold actions, the raising of the minimum wage, publication of our um, compensation information by gender and our pay equality initiative, the GPS, et cetera. They're all very bold things. To undertake any one of those during a two-year period would be very significant, but we were able to undertake multiple. And one of the ways we were able to do that is that I would take the lead on one and Dan would take the lead on the other. So that literally we could be in two places at once. I think similarly for the CEO, whose office was literally in the center of the floor we occupied and Dan's office was on one end of the floor and mine was on the other, he always had access to someone uh, when he needed an answer for something. And we were just very good about communicating daily and always being on the same page. So I would say uh, for me, I would do it over again in a heartbeat. I thought it was an incredible learning experience and more than anything else, having to lead with coherence and alignment philosophically and operationally with another person isn't always easy. It takes a lot of focus and effort to make sure you're on the same page. And that's great leadership development experience, I think, for any leader to figure out how to do that. I think uh, anybody who's a parent um, can imagine 
what that's like when you're trying to give the same message to your team or you know, your kids uh, and be on the same page. I think the same is true for any kind of uh, human organization. That's a great, uh, that's a great metaphor. So about what coming up on two years ago, October of 14, you were appointed by U S commerce Secret- secretary, Penny Pritzker to the national council on innovation and entrepreneurship where your main responsibility along with the other members is to provide advice and counsel to the secretary and the department of commerce on issues that will help the United States really become more globally competitive. And I'm curious, what have you found to be, what's our biggest deficit in the U.S.? What, what do we, what, what's our issue in terms of competitiveness? And maybe this is a, a whole nother podcast in and of itself, but what can you share that you've learned over the past year and a half that you've been on this uh, national council? Probably one of the primary learnings I've had as a private citizen who for the last 18 months has been what they call a special government employee where you're getting involved in working with the government to solve problems is one, that there are an incredible number of smart, talented, passionate, engaged, wise people working in the US government. And that part of unleashing all of that wisdom is coalition building ultimately. So when I think about the work of the council, the council is independent from the government. So the council is has was created by the America Competes Act of 2010. So an act of Congress that requires the Commerce Secretary to have this body of diverse experts from business, academia, um, non community-based organizations, etc., to advise her or him on issues of competitiveness around innovation and entrepreneurship. And one of the biggest learnings I've had, and I just wrote a blog about this last week, reflecting on my, uh, what, what did I learn here? One of the biggest things was what happens when you bring together diverse people, people from very diverse points of view, diversity of thought and experience. So in NACI, we have economists, we have entrepreneurs like Steve Case, the founder of AOL, or Rob Homan, the founder of Glassdoor. We have community-based organization leaders, like Laura Powers, who's the founder of Code 2040, who provides diverse talent uh, to technology firms. Many different points of view coming together to solve a problem, like how do we support the sharing economy, for example, or how do we have a solid pipeline um, of innovation through uh, innovation incubators? Uh, or how do we have the right data to match up people with skills with actual jobs? These are all things that we're working on. And I think one of the things I sort of learned is there's an old saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And I actually think sometimes diversity is the mother of invention as well. And in this case, having that diversity of perspective really causes people to challenge their assumptions about what can be done and what can't be done. And, um, there's kind of a long list of things that we've made progress on just in the last 18 months that I've been on the council. Um, And I think it just illustrates that even in a politicized environment, you can make progress if you're willing to work together with other people. 
uh, across party lines and um, and across other lines that separate people. Well, I think this diversity being the mother of invention uh, notion really it resonates with me in a big way. And you know, being up in the Bay Area, uh, you, you, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Ernie Arbuckle. He was an old dean at the Stanford uh, Global School, um, and he resurrected a concept uh, that was written about back in like the 40s or 50s. And forgive me, I forget the author's name, but Dean Arbuckle wrote a uh, an article, and I forget where it was published on this concept of repotting. And the concept basically emphasizes that every 10 years or so, it's actually really important for us as, as individuals contributing to businesses to essentially lift ourselves out of where we've spent our time and, and essentially repot in a new business or a new industry because that diversity of perspective that you will bring to something that you have a bit of a beginner's mind uh, towards can really help create exponential growth because you're going to look at problems in a way that, well, this isn't, you know, you, you really challenge the notion of, well, this is the way it's always been done in this particular industry. And I've always been fascinated by that concept of repotting. And I think it's uh, a, a building momentum around it because it's just a matter of time before businesses begin to realize that you don't always have to have someone who has experience in your industry. They need to be able to do the role and perform the role, whether it's a marketing role, a supply chain role, a finance role, whatever the role is, but can come into uh, your organization with a completely different set of perspectives and, and help you look at problems perhaps in a way that you never have because you're a bit too myopic because you've spent so much time in that particular industry. Yeah, I think that that's very much true. And I will say, uh, certainly for myself, that this interaction with the U.S. government for the first time in my life in this way was a bit of a repotting and one from which I think I will learn for many years to come. I will reflect back on this experience and I will just make a, a plug, if you don't mind, Brian. That no, please do. The Economic Development Administration, which is part of the Commerce Department that runs the, the NACI program, is right now accepting applications for the next two-year term of the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship that starts in the fall. So anyone who's listening to this and is interested uh, can go to eda.gov and apply. Awesome. Excellent. So I know we're running uh, real short on time. I just, I'd, I'd love to ask one last question if I can. Um, you know, there's a lot of different leaders who tune into this podcast, uh, download it, listen to it in a variety of ways. Uh, I'd love to get maybe just a, a piece of prescriptive advice so when you were at Gap, you obviously had your hand in all things talent, talent strategy, organizational effectiveness, talent attraction, talent engagement, talent rewards. You know, for those out there that just haven't had the breadth or depth of experience in talent strategy, what's the best piece of advice that you can share? Or perhaps what are the most important questions a leader could ask him or herself as they begin to think about forming a talent strategy? And I realize it's a really big question, but is there any, can you distill any bits of uh, words of wisdom for, for our audience? 
I think what I would share is what question drives me and has always driven me, and I can't guarantee that will work for everyone, but I know that going back a couple of decades, I've asked myself as I've been passionate about human beings and uh, about what makes for highly effective, highly engaged, highly productive workforces. Um, I've asked myself, what motivates people? I mean, that's really the core question. If I think back to the hundreds of books and articles and seminars and other things I've attended to try to find the answer to that question, ultimately that is the question that has driven all of my talent management thinking over the years and philosophies, and it's baked into a org designs, operating models, et cetera, uh, that have run over the years. It's why, for example, at Gap when I was there, we had core philosophies or principles, and in my particular case, evidence-based philosophies and principles, all of which were answers to that question. So for example, we were a strengths-based organization, which means that we designed talent selection and development programs and practices to focus on building people's strengths rather than just fixing their weaknesses because it's an evidence-based approach that's been proven to drive higher performance and drive and higher engagement in employees. Similarly, the results-only work environment we selected because it was designed to satisfy people's desire for autonomy, mastery, and purpose. The trio of, of uh, impulses that Dan Pink identified in his book, Drive, as being fundamentally associated with employee engagement. So I think these things are so, to me, if you're a curious person and your curiosity, if you're focused on people, revolves around what makes people tick, what makes them want to work hard and work together. Uh, it will drive what, where you focus your attention, what you read, what you experiment with, et cetera, and ultimately it leads to talent practices. And I think what we found at Gap is that at the end of the day, it often means that you have to invent your own practices, which was true for GPS, for example. Um, in the case of Roe, we adopted something that only one other company had really used because at many times, if, you're, if you really are looking at what drives human performance and human motivation, the existing practices in the marketplace don't do the job. You know, there's constantly emerging science about what, uh, how to motivate people, about how to create better environments. And I think at the end of the day at The Gap, one of the things that drove us the most and continues to drive me is a constant quest to find ways of helping people reach their full potential. And I've always believed that the organizations that don't view employee potential and business potential as mutually exclusive, but rather complementary, and keep searching for ways to manage people that bring out their best are the ones that will ultimately outlast. And I think um, the tagline we had at Gap uh, when I was there to describe this value proposition was 
um, performance for life, better you, better gap. And that was designed to capture the idea that we're always searching for ways to improve people's individual and collective performance because everybody wants to be good at the things that matter to them. And that when each individual on a team is it improves her performance, everybody wins. And when the whole team's performance improves, every individual wins. So it's a virtuous cycle and it's it's a concept that I will take with me wherever I go. Well, I love that uh, performance for life, better you, better gap, and asking the question of, you know, what what's going to drive people to perform at their best and leaders designing their talent strategies around the answer to that question. I think uh, the business world needs more leaders like yourself, Eric, uh, driving these types of philosophies. Um, and so I, I just, I, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the time with us. Uh, I know as your NACI opportunity uh, begins to wind down that some organization out there, if not already, is going to be incredibly just lucky uh, to have you as part of their most senior leadership team driving uh, these very uh, futuristic 21st century based talent strategies. Um, so I, I just, uh, it was such a pleasure, Eric. Really appreciate the time you spent with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Brian. I really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks so much. Until next time, thank you for listening, folks. You can obtain a transcribed version of this show and hear more interviews from the Built on Purpose podcast on our website, yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed Eric's interview, there are several others I think you'll dig as well. Kathy Sachs, entrepreneur, startup strategy junkie, angel investor, and eternal optimist. Ray Del Muro, founder and CEO of Refresh Glass. And Andy Cernovitz, author of Word of Mouth Marketing, and the CEO and founder of gaspedal.com are just a few of the many episodes you can find at yscouts.com forward slash podcast. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.